My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Eric Bettinger is a professor in the Stanford University School of Education and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's the director of the Center for Educational Policy Analysis and a co-director at the Lehman Center for Brazilian Education at Stanford. His research interests include student success and completion in college, the economics of education, the impacts of financial aid, and the effects of voucher programs. He served as a consultant to the White House and various state and national governments on educational policies. And Eric was also my stats teacher. I hope you enjoy learning from Eric Bettinger, because I always do. Eric, it's great to catch up with you today. You helped me prepare for my PhD program with your stats class, so I'm grateful to you for your class and grateful that you'd be on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. And Eric, as you think back on your research, are there any simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned that you'd most like to pass along to others? Um, you know, th- it was an interesting question when you asked this, because you, know, you asked this in the email and kind of suggested this might be the prompt. And it made me really kind of go through and scour my research, right? Because the, the the first tendency is to look at my research and say, okay, here's a, a lesson that we might be able to apply. But sometimes the, the biggest lessons and some of the underappreciated lessons have been the experience with not just one research project, but kind of a chain of research projects. And, and in particular, the lesson I was thinking about sharing was something about, you know, kind of learning to be wrong. And what I mean by that is um, you, you, we write these papers and we do as careful of research as we possibly can. But then we have to recognize that when we do that, we're in a setting and we identify a relationship and then we start to explore that relationship. And then the next time that somebody comes around, the setting might have changed or perhaps the, the, we, we just kind of got lucky the first time. And so sometimes we go and we discover these great lessons and we get so excited and we become the spokesperson for these lessons. And uh, and then when we go on the other side of it is we find that maybe we weren't exactly right. And how do we start to kind of understand that as we go? And, and I don't know if it works, but I, I thought to kind of share a very simple example of it from early in my career, if that's okay. Yeah, definitely. Love to hear it. Well, so, so um, one of the very first topics I did was I did this work on um, college remediation with uh, Bridget Long at Harvard. And you know, one of the things that's great about, uh, you know, kind of working with somebody else, especially somebody who kind of uh, comes from a different background, is you have this wide open picture. And we, we really kind of prided ourselves in really being circumspect about what we were doing. And as we were working on college remediation and trying to understand students' experience, the impact of it, and so forth, we came to the conclusion that it was really hurting some students and we came out very strongly. And, and so then we do what you're supposed to do when you have it. You know, we went on the touring circuit and went and told everybody, Oh, college remediation is awful. It's not working. It's got all these problems. And I remember being in a meeting and, you know, one of the presidents of a university got up there and just started yelling at me that I was wrong and everything. But of course, as a good academic, I dug in. I was so, you know, yes, we're right here. And uh, and then we got another year of data. And uh, that extra year of data changed the story. Turns out that, yes, after four years, they weren't doing as well as the others. But after the fifth year, they caught up. Interesting. Yeah. So the, the, the hard part then is what do you do, right? And here's the lesson, right? Is like, do you... 
do you go and say, well, no, it's wrong. It's just bad. Or do you try to give a broader picture and do you go and tell people, yeah, I kind of, I, I, I spoke too early. <laughs> and so I decided, you know, to kind of t tell the story that the data told. The data told the story after four years, things weren't quite as good. After five years, they were good and started going back and revising that story and going back to some of these same audiences where I just told them it was bad, telling them, well, now we have extra data and trying to kind of, you know, repent, so to speak, of, uh, of, of all the lessons that I told them. But I think the lesson here that I had was, and I'm glad it happened early in my career, was you know, a lot of academics, you know, kind of dig in, they learn something and they kind of put in their mind, okay, this is how the world is. And even in, you know, the way that we try to learn things, the whole nature of statistics is sometimes we're wrong. And learning how to accept and recognize when we're wrong is actually a good thing. It's a very good thing. And it's a very hard thing. And it's not just that that lesson applies to, you know, getting an academic paper and finding that the findings are different as time goes on. But it also applies to, you know, subsequent projects. So when I've looked at other forms of remediation, I get different answers and trying to understand why I get different answers and whether there really is a definitive answer out there. But the important part, you know, like is trying to recognize that all of the efforts that we try to make, not just in my professional side, but also in my other parts of my life, we're always just trying to learn. And as we learn, we get some things right, we get some things wrong. And that ability for us to step back every once in a while and say, maybe I didn't get that right, but let's try to do it again and see if I get a different answer. And trying to do that is something that I think is a good lesson for for life. Um, you know, I, I think uh, you know, learning that lesson in my academic careers, you know, learning to do that in my marriage is also kind of a good thing to recognize that every once in a while, when I've dug into something, I might be wrong, and I really need to go back and fix that. And so that's kind of the place where, or one way that I learned that lesson. Yeah, uh, I think this pause is there. See if you... Yeah, I think it's a really interesting lesson, Eric. Uh, one of the most valuable lessons I've learned from doing a PhD is to see how often I'm wrong because you you make predictions, you're certain you're going to get a result. I, I run experiments and then I collect the data and I look at the data and again, I'm certain I'm going to get the results. And then it's just amazing how often the results don't, you know, the data doesn't say what you thought it was going to say. And, and sometimes not only does it not say what you thought it was going to say, it's it's the complete opposite and you get the opposite result. And I just feel like that's one of the most valuable lessons I've learned that I'm not as smart as I think I am. The world's oftentimes not as predictable as we think it is. And it has hopefully taught me just to be more humble and to follow the data. And in your case, this is a really, you know, the, the research you're doing impacts students and their well-being. I mean, you talk about this remediation. I mean, I imagine universities, colleges all across the country are, they're trying to take into account this research, you know, do we offer college remediation or not? Or And, and, and one of the things that's interesting is it actually winds up being that series of papers, one of the most cited works that I've ever done. So people really looked at it. People were very interested in kind of the lessons that were to be learned there. Um, and then to kind of step back and be the person in the room who says, if the next paper comes out and builds on it, I mean, one of the things I think that's underappreciated in academics is oftentimes 
the value of a paper is, and, and I would say also for life, not just academics, is being able to ask the question. And then you get your answer. And then you kind of have to step back and ask yourself and continually ask yourself, have I got it right? And as you continue to try to you know, study it, experiment with it, do whatever it is, you start to kind of recognize whether you are really onto something that's consistently giving you the same answer and then starting to work on that knowledge, but always being humble enough to step back and say, hmm, you know, and, and one of the things that was a byproduct of that paper, it was one of the very first papers to take a rigorous look at remediation. I think part of the reason why it's so cited is because now it's it has spurred you know, hundreds of people to do research in this area. And they keep citing it as kind of the first paper in this area. But now the research is so far beyond the things that I was doing. You know, they've run experiments in the field. They've tried different modalities of doing it. They've tried all these new things. And so, you know, on the one hand, I'm kind of, I was kind of bummed when we were not really kind of getting and converging on a single solution. But now when I look at the whole body of it and I see that because we asked the question, and somebody else might have asked it, uh, you know, was probably going to ask it at some point. But because we started asking the questions, other people started looking into it. And then a group was looking into it. And then many people were trying to figure out how to fix it. And it confirmed some parts of what we looked at and disproved other parts, but also presented new solutions. And so I think, you know, where we're at today in college, you have been saying remediation, but, you know, the, I think the the right title is developmental learning. Um, where we are right now in developmental studies and is a much better place as a result of the body of research that happened there. And so sometimes asking the question doesn't necessarily mean that we pick put ourselves into a box. What it does is helps us to start to frame that question in a broader place and help others start to grapple with the same questions that we have. And that just made me think, um, what is the state of developmental learning or college remediation? And what does that look like? I mean, we're using these terms, but some people may not know yeah. or have gone through a program. So what what does that look like? And what does that look like? And what is the state of it now in, in universities and colleges? Well, just to give you a quick idea, I mean, so what oftentimes, uh, especially in non-selective colleges, the real gatekeeper isn't admissions because they're, they're open admissions. It's whether or not you can pass uh, a placement exam that demonstrates that you have a proficiency in math as well as in uh, language. And you know, it's a real surprise to some students when they take these placement exams. And there's some research now that's out there that suggests even the placement exams aren't overly predictive of kind of success. But if you fail that exam, then you're stuck in, in the typical program in some type of developmental education. And before you can move on in math and language, you have to actually do some type of developmental education to try to shore up those things. Now, what's the innovation that I think I'm probably most excited about, there's a group at RAND um, and uh, UT Dallas who've done some randomized control trials in Texas, where what they did was they actually embedded in the assignments that students were getting in the first class in their major, a set of assignments that actually required the math skills that they would have developed in the other one. And so what they did on the side while they're in their first class in their major was they taught them these extra skills. And in the process of them doing general education classes, they added these modules that would allow them to learn these skills in the context of, of subjects they wanted to study. And so they developed these skills and, and in this kind of, they sometimes call it like a concurrent enrollment um, 
they've been able to develop those skills while not being set back. And historically, you couldn't take those classes until you'd pass these developmental classes. And now by teaching them side by side, um, they're more interesting and we're seeing more success and students more likely to go on. So um, again, it's, it's a great state of where the people are at. I wish I'd discovered all of that stuff, but I'm glad that I could be part of that learning process. Yeah, really cool to hear. I mean, there's there are very few places in the world that can improve uh, hopefully your your mind and your intellect and your thinking ability and your job opportunities and just all opportunities in life, uh, you know, as a, as a university can. Cool to hear about some of the innovations uh, that are happening there. As we wrap up, are, are there any other, is there any other final lesson that you'd like to share uh, in the last few minutes here? Well, you know, maybe just to build on this one just a little bit more. You know, one of the things that I find is that when you have expertise in something or when people perceive you do, you're often asked to to comment on things, to come in and to talk to people about the types of things you've learned and to give those lessons. And so one of the things that I found in that setting is coming in in that same uh, notion of humility and recognizing that oftentimes people who are experiencing it, people who are going through it, have more information or different information than you might have as you're trying to evaluate things. And as you can see it from their perspective, and if you're humble and, and present yourself not as the expert in the room, but as a person who's who's fighting side by side with them to make it better, I find that I get you know kind of greater cooperation and greater um, greater capacity to be involved in the decision making when I approach things with that same type of attitude of. I know I might be wrong, but here's what we know. Here's the pluses, here's the minuses, but we need to figure out for your situation. And so as part of it is, it's not just being willing to be humble in the way that we learn things and in the lessons we learn and be teachable as we go through things, but there's this extra layer that we also in our leadership opportunities and in our ability and our opportunities to really change the world, um, approaching it with a level of humility so that the other people on the other side of the table feel empowered to make the types of decisions and to ask the kinds of questions that they need to ask to really understand whether it works in their settings. It makes for wonderful partnerships. And as I've gone, you know, through different state governments or to different, um, uh, you know, countries and worked with the leaders in those areas on educational policy, you know, when I've approached it with that kind of humble attitude of let's learn together, you know, we can form partnerships that last for decades because people are excited. People see that I care about what they're doing. Um, and then we can also discover things together and ask questions that I probably wouldn't have been able to ask if I had actually approached it in a, in a more rigid way. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but hopefully it does. Yeah, really interesting. I, I think, uh, you know, one way to think about this is you're, is you're talking about humility when we learn and then humility when we share. And yeah. I heard a lesson just a couple of weeks ago that um, said your job as a teacher is to help people ride a bike. You know, I can stand up here and I can tell you what it feels like to ride a bike and I can try and describe it and I can talk to you about balance and motion and pedaling. But until you actually get on a bike, you just don't understand what it's like. And I really like that analogy. My job as a teacher, uh, when I'm sharing things that I want people to learn, is to help them get on the bike. And, and then we ride together and, and having some humility um, with, you know, I'm not just going to stand up and tell you everything. We're going to do this together. It, it's cool to hear that lesson that it's been much more effective for you. And this is something that I want to remember 
as I teach a lot, both in the classroom and, and try to share things on this podcast to just have a, a mindset of humility. I, I think that's right. And then the more that you have that and the more you approach situations, you build the capacity in other people for them to be able to make those types of decisions and for them to be able to get on the bike and then not only figure out how to do the bike, but how to share those lessons with other people as they learn how not just to ride the bike, but to do real tricks on the bike that I never thought were possible. <laughs> well, it, it's so cool to hear these lessons. I mean, I know you're working, uh, like you said, state governments and federal governments and other countries and your work has an impact and, and people are making decisions that affect the lives of, I don't know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, maybe maybe even millions. And, and depending on how long this this world lasts, uh, we'll see is, is you just contribute piece by piece uh, a little bit here, a little bit there to this body of knowledge and, and allows other researchers to come and, and build on top of you. So anyway, uh, I just want to thank you, Eric, for coming on. It, it's it's so great to catch up again and uh, appreciate you sharing these lessons with me. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. Great talking to you today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. I always love learning from people who embody the lessons they share, and Eric Bedinger did that today. Such great lessons from Eric. First, learn to be wrong. Eric's most cited, impactful research has been impactful in ways he never expected. His work showed that college remediation wasn't effective. He hit the speaking tour, argued with policymakers and academics, and stood by his data. Until he got new data. And then he went back to all the same people and acknowledged that the new data told a different story. Because of his willingness to humbly share the new data, others were able to build on his work. And now this one paper of Eric's has become the genesis for an entire field of research that hundreds of other people are now building and innovating on. For example, researchers at RAND and at UT Dallas found that by embedding developmental education into regular assignments, students are able to develop skills without getting set back. Because Eric learned to be wrong, an entire field of research has become infinitely more impactful than his single paper ever could have been. Second, be humble when you teach. As Eric meets with national and international policymakers, he's learned that he has a much greater impact when he adopts the mindset of, let's work together, rather than, let me tell you how it's done. By starting with humility, Eric develops partnerships that last for decades. And by humbly working together, Eric's clients build capacity and then are able to teach others tricks on the bike that even Eric would never expect. In summary, we should be humble, both when we learn and when we teach. This empowers others to build on our work, and as a result, we have an infinitely greater impact. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for your support.